Hi, welcome to Musicians on the Record. This is the show where we get the musician story. I'm David Ward, and I am so happy today. Uh, uh, an amazing, the wizard of the keyboard. My next guest, currently on a short break on tour with rock icon John Fogarty. He's also on Ringo's new album. That's very cool. We're going to talk all about that. He has a new single called Good People, and it's out now. Go buy it wherever you can buy music. Bob Malone is on the show with us today. Welcome, Bob. Hi, how are you? I'm doing well. I'm so pleased that you're here uh, on the show. I've been so fortunate to uh, uh, have interviewed and talked with most of the Fogarty band uh, because I had the good fortune to go see you in concert. Yeah. A few months. I was busy few... hanging out at the fire pit. Right, exactly. That was a lot of fun. A few weeks ago at Rock Row in Westbrook, Maine, and I got to say, you got one of the biggest ovations of the night for your keyboard solo. It was fantastic. Thank you for that. Yeah. Oh, yeah. no problem. Yeah. See it coming. <laughs> right. Yeah. Exactly. Right. Yeah. Let's talk about. Let's start with the new single, "Good People," and tell us about the story and the inspiration of this. Oh, well, you know, um, it was, uh, there had been one of those shootings. I can't even remember which one. And uh, my wife just gets very distraught. She's a very empathetic person. And uh, she was just depressed. And I wrote this song about how there are good people in the world. It's not a political song. You know, it's just really about humanity. And uh, then I recorded it and everyone freaked out about it in a way that no one has ever about anything else I've done. Is that right? So, in yeah. A, in a good just, way. It just, yeah. Just, yeah. I mean, in a great way, people nice. just really respond to it and want to hear it over and over. And, uh, anyway, it's been doing great. That's wonderful. It came out, you know, so I sat on it for a while because I was like, Oh man, I don't, I want to do, I want it to be just right. And, yeah. you know, that kind of thing. What was the process of you actually even writing the songs and you sing on the song as well? Cause you sing too. Yeah. yeah I wrote it right here at this piano mm. <laughs> and, uh, in, right here in this office, you know, and, and, uh, and then I went and I got together with uh, Bob DeMarco who produces all my stuff and plays guitar on it. Nice. And, uh, he, you know, he, added some melodic content and changed some chords and just made it, you know, made it more strong as a, as a, uh, you know, a, a tune. That's amazing. It's awesome. And, you know, that's often our process. Like I'll have a song and it's really good. And then he'll just make it great with a couple of tweaks here and a couple of tweaks there. And I'm like, why didn't I think of that? Right. Right. That's why it's a good to have a team approach, right? Yeah, it really is, you know. Uh, uh, it really is. Yeah. Uh, other people, I, I really believe in having the input of others, you know. Like, I'm, I'm a good musician. I can arrange, I can do a lot of things that a lot of people can't do. So I could just do everything by myself. I have the capability. Right. But, uh, you know, everything I've ever done has been improved by input from somebody who thinks differently than me and sees it from the outside, you know, it makes a huge difference. Yeah. So I love that. Yeah. Keeping an open mind as a musician too. So um, I want to invite folks to get your questions in for Bob. We are in the motor studios in Portland, Maine. You're in LA, right, Bob? Right. Yep. Studio in- 
What's that? Beautiful downtown Studio City. Studio City. <laughs> Love it. Fantastic. Let us, know, let us know where you're watching from in the world. Get your questions in for Bob. What's it with his own story? What's it like playing with John Fogarty on tour with Ringo? Um, his, his beginnings, whatever you'd like to ask, whether you're watching live or in the replay. Um, say a little bit more about some of the reactions that you got, surprising or not surprising with good people, please. Oh, uh, not surprising. I think people were just really moved by it, yeah. you know. Uh, it they all were like this is what i'm feeling yeah. you know it's like when you write a song you write a song that's personal it's about you it's about someone you know but the trick is that it's really about everybody right you know if you've succeeded it seems like a personal song but everyone's like oh my god that's me you know so that's uh, that's what that's where i got it right yeah and the video whenever i get it right that's what happens right. <laughs> The video is very cool, too, Bob, where you're on a rooftop uh, part of it, playing the keyboards. And gra- you get, Was this a drone that was going around filming you? Yeah, we, we hired a drone. I was like, this would have cost, back 10 years ago, this would have cost 60 grand and right. you had to get a helicopter. You right, know? right, exactly. <laughs> yeah, I, we, I was sitting with the director and he's like, we want to shoot you outside with your piano. I have this piano, it's a real piano, but yeah. it's made to be portable. It's only 250 pounds only. <laughs> instead of the normal, the normal 800 that a regular grand God. weighs. Wow. So I, I just, uh, he said, like, we got to get you outside with this piano. And then I was like, what if we do it on a roof, like somewhere here in L.A. where it looks urban, like you'll see the buildings. And he's like, that's an awesome idea. And I said, we could do it right on the roof of my apartment building, my, where our condo is. So I go up there and the alarm goes off, you know, and we go running. I said, well, that's not going to work. No. So then I was like, we're never going to be able to do this. We'll never be able to afford it. We'll never get a permit. You know, everything's complicated. So I, but I went online and I Googled uh, Los Angeles rooftop video, sh- downtown L.A. rooftop video shoot. And it, what, this thing came up immediately, hmm. this building in downtown L.A., it's full of studios, like artists and photographers and filmmakers have studios there. It's in downtown LA. It was like a hundred bucks an hour wow. to shoot on their roof, <laughs> right? It's fantastic. So, no permit, nothing. I could not believe. I said, "Well, I think we found the place." So no, we no doubt. went over there. We had the my cartage guys who, who moved that piano around, brought in the. Piano and, it came, and there was a freight elevator. Went all the way up to the next to last floor, oh. and the last two like you had to be carried up. Right. Uh, so it was it was a bit difficult. And then uh, anyone who ends up watching, you'll see uh, we're on the roof, but there was this little piece that came out from the roof. It was just this roof extra rooftop no nothing around it like the rest was sunken it was kind of walls around it but this was up and it was nothing around it and it was about the size of the piano and me sitting at the piano wow. and he's like that's the spot that's the spot i said you i could die up there like if i if i get excited and go back like this far yeah i go over the edge it was close to the so anyways to the edge. but it's a great shot it yeah. really was a great shot right so we set it all up there, and I sat there, and all day I'm like, 
I'm not getting off this stool. I'm right. not. There's no way I'm getting up. And he's going around me, and I'm like, dude, you're going to fall off. You're going to fall off. Anyway, we got some, you know, some sacrifices you have to make. It came out great. It was amazing. And what was the the, yeah. the, the piano was beautiful. It was a glass top. Yeah, it's a Yamaha Electric Grand, which is this thing they used to make uh, before there were digital pianos. You had, you know, your choice was if you wanted a piano on stage, you had to move around a real one. Yep. So this was like a real one that was all built to be portable, like it breaks down into two halves. Yep. And it's it's amplified like, you know, you know, when you play a regular piano in a rock show, you you put pickups in it. Sure. So this had the pickups built into it. Very nice. Anyway, it was pretty ingenious and uh, at shorter strings. Anyway, this is all. So I got I bought that thing 30 years ago when I was in college, and I've had it ever since. Is that right? So that's uh, yeah. That's fantastic. Since, yeah, and uh, and so I used it for years, and it got trashed. Ooh. And then I end, I put it in my dad's garage, and it sat there for about 12 years. And then he he's like, I'm I'm moving. You got to get this thing out of here, right? So I got it out, and it was just so destroyed it wasn't that playable really so uh i just ju i just brought it to the, uh, custom vintage keyboards they do all they work on my Wurlitzers and my hammond v3 and all the stuff i use in a fogarty game all my vintage stuff yeah and uh he's like oh we can rebuild this i'm like can you make it look just like it was when it was new he's like boring oh is that Let's right Let's make it red you know so they put red Tolex on it and we put a plexiglass top on it which is what you so you can see the strings and everything yeah it, anyway it's a beautiful piano it really is that thing. and have you used it on tour with john with fogarty i've been used it with john i've used it on my own shows you know i haven't i'm on a riser with john i don't know if it'll fit up there okay. anyway yeah. that's a different gig sure. The Don Fogarty gig, basically, those keyboards come with the gig. Like that's they own all those keyboards. Oh, okay, those are not your keyboards. <laughs> no, that's not. I have uh, that. I have a Wurlitzer like on the thing, but they have their own. Got it. Which is great. Yeah. You know, I bring some. Uh, I've brought my own stuff. You know, something will get broken, and then like you know, it's better if we use theirs. We don't have to worry about well, it. Exactly. Yeah. Anyway, they, they own that whole. They have that whole ring. And they gave me what I wanted. You know, when I came on the gig, there was no Wurlitzer, you know, like, uh, you know, like that tune, right? It's on a Wurlitzer mm. piano, which is this great vintage piano. that, And uh, they didn't have one. And John was like, I really don't like that piano. So I was doing it on the keyboard. And I said, yeah, we should get a real Whirly. And they're like, oh, no, they're... They're a pain in the ass, stuff breaks, and he was right about that. Okay. But I'm like, we should still get a real one. But no one said much about anything, and then a few months later, a couple of real ones just showed up at, at a rehearsal. Is that right? Then I've had them ever since. Very cool. They're wonderful. Yeah. Yeah. So can we talk? <laughs> good to have can we talk about the gig with John? John Fogarty. How did you get the gig? How did this even come about for you, Bob? Uh. You know, I paid off a guy. No, I'm just kidding. I, I, I have my lawyer, who's also a friend of mine, who I've known for 25, 26, since the early 90s. We're both the same age. He was a young guy coming up when when we met. I was a young guy coming up. He worked for David Braun, who's, uh, who's now passed away. But he was a really huge entertainment lawyer. 
going all the way back to the 60s, like Bob Dylan was his client, and uh, Robbie Robertson, Janis Joplin was his client. He was at the table when the Beatles broke up. He was like, I think, George Harrison's lawyer for the Beatles. Break. I mean, legendary guy. So, so my guy, you know, worked for him. And then when he retired, he took over the company. Anyway, Fogarty is one of their clients. So uh, they, uh, he calls me up. He goes, um, yeah, I think I, I think I might have got you a gig with John Fogarty, and he might call. No way, really, that's just out of the blue. No one called, and another six months went by, and I didn't think much about it because 99% of uh, stuff doesn't happen, you know, in, in showbiz. Yeah. The stuff that you want to talk about is the 1% of stuff that actually happened, right? right? That, that's usually the ratio. And then I did end up getting a call, and I went over there to audition in John's garage. Is that right? Yeah, in the Hollywood Hills. Cool. And, uh, you know, I got the gig. I was playing Credence tunes in a garage. It's like, who hasn't done this? <laughs> right. Everyone's done that John Fogarty wasn't there when they were doing it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, my my cover band didn't have John in it too, and we were playing some Creedence songs. What well, were yeah. were you nervous? What was that like meeting with him the first time? I wasn't that nervous. I was a little, you know, it's nerve wracking to go do something like that. But once I was there, I don't know. Once I'm playing, I'm never nervous. Once I'm doing my thing, you know, I'm confident about it. So. I was prepared, <laughs> you know. It helps to be well prepared. Yes. Did you have some songs? And I, I just yeah, they gave me kind of a list of songs okay. that, that might come up, but I just learned all the hits just in case. Sure. You know, the first three I played were like old fifties rock tunes because that's what he loves. That's what he grew up on. Yeah. People you play with, I'm like this too. Is a front when people are working for me. Yeah. I like that they. I want them to like what I like, not just learn my songs. Right. Anyone can do that. But if they like what I like, you know, where you're coming, this is what he wanted from me. You know, it's like, do I dig, uh, like, where he's coming from? Yeah. The stuff he loves. And I loved that stuff. Sure. And it shows up in your playing, you know. Yeah. Aside from just learning the guy's songs. Of course. You know? Of course. And you guys were just at, not officially Woodstock, but the 50-year anniversary in Bethel, New York. You just That was your last show of this leg of the gig. Yeah. Tell me a little bit about that, and, and what what were the feelings you had of playing in that historic place again? Well, uh, Bethel Woods is a, a shed. They call it a shed. It's one of those indoor-outdoor venues. You know, it's got the roof, but the, the lawn seats, right, you know. Uh and uh, it's on the site of where Woodstock originally happened, which, for people who don't know, it was not actually at Woodstock. The town of Woodstock is 90 miles north of Bethel, and it was supposed to be there, and they lost their the, – the town decided against it, so they had to move it really quick. Kind of like this one they tried to put on this year. Right, didn't right. Out. Yeah. So they moved to the Bethel, you know, the whole story. Max Gasger rented his farmland out. Right. So so ever since, since for years, that was I actually in 2000, I played this kind of really low budget uh, Woodstock anniversary thing on that site. They actually, Gasger's original barn, they built a like a wooden stage in front of it. Wow. At a bunch of 
Sparks. And it was really muddy. People were there, standing there with like uh, bag, you know, plastic bags tied around their shoes and all like squelching through the mud. Yeah. It's amazing. There's a guy now that, that uh, does sound over at Bethel Woods who was one of the people that put that on. It's amazing. I saw him there. And he was like, oh, remember that thing in the mud here? Yeah, I said, yeah, this is a real step up from that. It's the history of mud at Bethel. Right? Yeah. So it was great to be there. You know, we played there before. Yes. Uh, you know, it's it rained, and they had to delay the show for rain. I'm like, it's just, you know, history repeating itself. Right. You know, the funniest thing happens to me is, uh, you know, I once in a while people come up to me like, what was it like to be in Credence? And I'm like, well, they, they broke up when I was five. I don't really, you know, I don't really... Yeah. Right. I was a bit of a prodigy, but no, right. not that. Right, yeah, exactly. That, 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 People don't be... really know the timeline. Those right. songs are timeless. Really? And are. they could come from any time. Right. I've played them, and they really could be written right now, you right. know? Right. Which is which is what it's all about. You know, and most artists would, would love to have one of those albums. They had three of those albums in one year, which is basically, yeah. you know, John, yeah, wrote crazy. three albums worth of material and... Yeah, and and a lot of the hits are from that one year. Exactly, right? Just, just cranking them out. Right. Yeah. Um, and any uh, stories from the tour? Because I know you guys are going back on the road in a few weeks. Anything? Any sort of highlights or challenges that have uh, been part of the tour well, so far? Not a lot of challenges. You know, it's a pretty, pretty. You know, challenges are more. You know, back. Back when I was torn, super low budget, right. <laughs> you know, right. sleeping on couches. I really, I really can't look at anything on that tour as a challenge. Right. But uh, you know, it's always tiring to be on the road. Yeah. You know, I mean, I we we get worn out. That was a bus tour because the band was really big, and uh, it's 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 uh, it's wearing. Yeah. And the older you get, the more wearing it is. Mm. Like you can really see. A bunch of us who are older, and we're road dogs and road warriors, and we know how to do it, and we right. know what it is. But there's like some guys on the tour that are in their 20s or early 30s, and they're just way more resilient than we are. You know what I mean? Right. Like, sure. they just don't need a lot of sleep. Right. They don't, they just, like, oh, damn, let's, like, you're so perky right now. What's wrong? With, oh, right. yeah, you're 20 <laughs> years younger than me. Right. That's what it is. Yeah. Makes a huge difference, right? How do you yeah. take care of yourself on tour then, Bob, as far as, you know, getting enough sleep, nutrition, all of that? I try to be good. You know, it's hard. I kind of lack discipline. But actually, my friend Trissette has been on this gig, and she's very disciplined about what she eats. And so she's been, hi, Trizzy. She's been, uh, you know, she would just make sure that I didn't do anything bad. <laughs> she's my conscience. There you go. And then, she made me walk like a mile with her. You know, That's pretty. Gonna good. get our steps in, or we're gonna get fat. Right. <laughs> oh, I hate you. You're the worst person on earth. <laughs> well, we played Radio City Music Hall in that trip. Mm. That was uh, that was meaningful because my piano teacher, when I was growing up in New Jersey, it was uh, Ashley Miller, who was the organist at Radio City for years. Mm. Made all the albums, like you know. The, the, the Mighty Wurlitzer at Radio City Music Hall, out, they were all in Columbia. There was all these records, and he made all those. So uh, Amazing. 
I got to play there. It just it was it was nice. Right. He's not alive, so you didn't get to see it. But um, yeah, so let's really let, let's talk about your story and your beginnings, Bob. When did you fall in love with the piano and the keyboards? Well, I was nine, and I was just this kind of restless, annoying kid. And I'm like a restless, annoying adult, but that's another story. Uh, and you know, I, my parents were just kind of like looking for something for you know, like to be a well-rounded kid. Yeah. You should, we, we had an organ in the house, one of those home organs, right? Yeah. You know, with a little rhythm box, you know, and, and, uh, my dad played it not very well. He'd just come home. He's okay with me saying that. <laughs> that's good and, and yeah yeah he wasn't he wasn't talented he just liked to play after work sure, to relax sure. you know so we had this thing and, and so i went to take lessons and the first year of taking lessons i showed no i was not into it and uh there was no sign that i would end up you know where i am now and but my mom was like don't be a quitter. Don't give up. Just I'll watch you play. I, I found that I liked to play if somebody watched me, mm-hmm. which is still the case. Sure. Right. And uh, she's like, I'll watch you practice for 15 minutes a day. If you just practice for 15. So about eight months into that, all of a sudden I could play. Mm-hmm. You know, I was just ripping. You know, and it was all there all of a sudden. Yeah. And uh that was it. Then they couldn't tear me away, and 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 I gave up everything else. I was like, I'm going to be at, in four day. They had career day when you went on the little stage at the auditorium and you talked to you know everybody wanted to be a princess or a garbage man or a spaceman or whatever. The garbage men were really popular in our neighborhood. Is that right? You know? Yeah, yeah. They came and everyone thought they were cool yeah. and they're like, hey, you know, and everyone loved the garbage man. All the kids. So I went up there and I was like, I'm going to be a musician i'm going to play piano you knew and everyone was uh, and that's pretty much how it was since i was 10 oh. and uh yeah because my mom made me not quit right but i really wanted to play piano that whole time i was learning classical organ you know with the feet wow. you know with the pedals the whole thing wow. but i loved the piano mm. and uh so finally i got mom and dad to get me a piano so then i learned both and that's why I play both because they're completely different instruments, you know. Sure, of course. Well, thank you, mom and dad, for inspiring you, right? Yeah, they were good to me, and they were not musicians. You know, they were not arts people. Sure. They they had no idea what was about to happen, and they were just supportive. Right. You know, they were they were good to me, and they weren't parents, which was also great. So I just did it because I wanted to do it. Right. And yeah. That was that was how it all began. And by fifteen, I was playing in bars, you know. And is that right? Yeah. What was the music that was inspiring you? Who were the artists that were sort of hitting your soul here, Bob? Well, at first, you know, at first I was just into. Like when I started taking lessons, I was a kid with, you know, I listened to I had like Disney soundtracks and stuff. And that's kid stuff that kids like, you know, eight year olds like or whatever. And then once I started playing, I would get really deeply into classical music and also like fusion, like Return to Forever and Weather Report and 
shit that like some no 11 year old kid has any business being into but that's what i was into that and and stravinsky and beethoven and all that kind of thing and uh i had very little awareness of pop culture and when i was 14 i guess I was walking through this uh, the stereo section in the, the Sears store in Willowbrook Mall in New Jersey, and I heard uh, scenes from an Italian restaurant, you know, Billy Joel's on. And I stood there transfixed, and I listened to the whole thing, and I'm like, that's what I want to do. I want to write songs like that. And it was kind of a piece of music. It was a nice transitional. Yeah. And then, uh, so... That it began there, and and shortly after that, I, I got a copy of, uh, of Sergeant Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club band, yeah. uh, which just blew me away. You know, this is ten years after the Beatles broke up, but you know, it doesn't matter. No, it doesn't. Right. And uh, that I I couldn't get enough of that. I wore out like two copies of that by the time I was sixteen. Favorite and, song uh, or favorite songs from that album? Favorite songs from that album. Ah, I know if I have a favorite song. That album appealed to me because it, it, it plays like one long piece yeah. of music. And it also, it's varied. Like to this day, like I get kind of got pegged as a blues artist because I sing bluesy and I do bluesy type stuff. But really, I'm all over the map musically. Okay. And... Uh, um, that's just how I am, and and think about it. I think it's because of that record, you know. Mm. Because every song is in a completely different style, but it all hangs together. Yeah, you know. I just wondered, was so, there one one or more than others that helped you piano wise or keyboard wise? Oh, I don't know. It wasn't uh, like a real keyboard album for me. It was okay. just uh, the songs and the concepts and the energy of it, and the way. Coming off of classical music, it was sophisticated enough uh, musically, you know, that I could really relate. Like, I didn't get simple music at first. I did later on. But, you know, coming from where I came from, uh, you know, I needed needed some some complicated chord changes or, or I'd get bored easily.
it's like Catholics. <laughs> wow, that is fantastic. Incredible stuff, Bob. Thank you so much for that. Let's uh, get back into the mix here. So we're, we're talking about your story and getting in everything uh, as far as you know, you're starting to play. You said you were like 14 or 15 when you started playing clubs. How did mom and dad feel about that? Well, you know, they were a little worried. <laughs> I would think, yeah. But then it became a thing where, like, it was, uh, it became apparent that I would, I could be employable doing this, uh-huh. you know, playing the piano thing. So, uh, you know, was it, yeah, the sax player in my first little garage band was you know old enough he had a car you know <laughs> he was old enough to drive and he had a fake id you know, to buy booze there you go Sorry. Yeah. and uh yeah we used to play the, the funniest one i don't know if it's funny but um we got hired to play some terrible club in new jersey and we and we drove there and bring our stuff in with the setup and there's another band setting up and then we call this the booking agent we're like hey there's another band here you know they double booked hmm. and so he scrambled around and he found us another place to play some even worse place where the band hadn't shown up i don't know what had happened but anyway we went over there we did our gig and then we're driving home and we drive back past the club we were supposed to play at hmm. And it had burned to the ground. Oh, my God. It was just uh, a lot with a smoking, like, building. Like, wow. I, it burned after, like, it had closed, right? Holy like, cow. Like, not we in there. And uh, I said, well, yeah, good thing we didn't play that no way. Yeah. It's kismet right there, right? Divine divine uh, calling, for God's yeah. sakes. Yeah. What was the dream that was starting to to develop for you, Bob? I mean, your folks believed in you. You were starting to gig. You were just a kid having fun. Was there a dream that you wanted to? I mean, I wanted to write songs and sing them and be a big star and all that. You know, I didn't really have that concise of a plan. You know, I, I mostly just wanted to play music and make enough money at it. I didn't have to do anything else. Right. So I achieved that right away, okay. but it wasn't, you know, it wasn't exactly being a star, you know, it was just, right. uh, and then it all just kind of evolved, you know, I was playing these gigs, you know, four sets a night of cover tunes and all that kind of thing, every possible scenario you can think of, like hotels, piano bars, grungy rock clubs, uh, I was on the road with a band, I was... Uh, I played on a harbor cruise boat for a while, like uh, during the day. Wow. All kinds of, you know, whatever. Yeah. Anything big money, I go show up and play. Right. And after a while of doing that, I realized that you can't really do that and be an artist. You know, I was doing my own songs yeah. at that point, too. Hmm. And, you know, I would say by 25 or so, I'd been a working musician for eight years already, and I was pretty burn out by doing that sort of work and i was like i either got to just be who i want to be or get out so i stopped doing all that kind of work and i just did my own music and i went on the road 
playing in the kind of uh, you know listening rooms and places where you played your own opening for people and just yes. you know driving around and like back and forth across the country right. and getting known that way and yeah. and that's all I did since. Yeah, and so, by, by the time I got called to do the John Fogarty gig, uh, I'd been doing it for years. I'd been doing my thing, and it was working out. You know, it wasn't huge or anything, but I had an audience. I have an audience. That's great. And uh, you know, small, but enough to, that I could make a living right. playing my own tune. Right. Yeah, sure. So uh, that thing just fell in out of the sky from nowhere. Mm. You know, I wasn't expecting. I wasn't trying to get that. And uh, yeah, it was a real boost to my career to get sure. to get that, and to just play. It was. I think it made me better at what I do to be around someone that great, you know, who, you know, like night after night. Because the thing about anyone who gets uh, to that stature, a lot of it is they just sound unlike anyone else, right? Right. right. Everyone we love. Bands, artists we don't like that they still I recognize right away. Oh, it's fill in the blank. I hate them, but I know exactly who they are. That's right. When I hear them, that's everything. Yes. <clears throat> so I learned a lot about that. You know, I, I, I was I've, I've known a lot of people and, who were really fantastic musicians, but they sounded like other people. I mean, I I went through the same thing myself for a long time. But that, I don't know if I've even yet totally found voice, but I feel like I have. That was a real courageous step, though, that you took of stopping doing more of the covers kind of thing to finding your own voice. And you talked about some of the challenges. Was there ever a time before the Fogarty gig came in that you said, OK, I am going to chuck it in or or what kept you yeah, going? Actually, right. Uh, right. When I got that gig, it was 2011 and. The recession was at its worst, and for the very first time in my life, there was no work. I was going on the road, and and like I did this one tour for like a month, playing for twenty people a night. You know, like no one was coming, and there was no session work. There was just nothing. It was the first time ever that I was not making it, and I was like, I think I'm gonna have to quit. Which was unimaginable. I, it's not. I mean, I'm f at that point. I'm 44 years old or whatever, and I've never done anything else. Right. Not like I can type my resume up and you right. know, it's right. like all I've ever done. Right. So, and I got that call right yeah. then. Wow. Right as I was facing this empty mm. calendar and really in despair. Powerful. So. Yeah. I got. It was good timing for me. No doubt. Thank, thank John Fogarty. And, and, you know, all of the work that you had put into place, like you said, it was uh, unimaginable to stop. So now you're playing with uh, John Fogarty. You're also on Ringo's uh, latest album. Uh, I, I want to hear a little bit about this because, uh, you know, kudos to you. Nice job. How did this all come about? Uh you know, I knew a guy. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it's networking. Uh, right? uh, Bruce Sugar, who engineered my last record, my Mojo Deluxe record, uh, he is Ringo's engineer. Ringo, like, Ringo records something, he's the guy. And him and Joe Walsh, he, both of those guys. Yeah. And they're really good friends because uh, Ringo and Joe Walsh are married to uh, sisters. Yes. Right. right. So 
they're always hanging out. Yeah. And uh, anyway, he he calls me one day. I'm at a at a gig, and uh, he actually sent me a, like a Facebook message. Ringo, hey man, you want you want to play on? The, you want to do a track for Ringo? Oh, okay. Uh, it's really easy. And I'm like, is that is that what I think it? And I and I kind of stood up and I was like, oh my god, oh my god, oh my god. Oh my god. <laughs> and I thought, sure, man. Yeah. What's it pay? No, I didn't. Right. <laughs> anyway, he's like, yeah, it's Monday. It's at his house. Like at his house. Yeah. So which was ten minutes from my house. There's stuff in the Hollywood Hills over awesome. here. Uh, so I went over to Ringo's house and pulled in and yeah he gave me he goes cool i'll give you ringo's address i'm like ringo's address <laughs> i'm laying in bed with my wife and we look we look up the address and it, you know the google maps thing like you can actually see and so it's gate you know and there's a garbage can and my wife's like that's ringo's garbage can <laughs> ringo has trash too like, yeah yeah, yeah no. a friend of mine is real Beatles freak. He's like, get a picture of something really like mundane at Ringo's house to prove he's like an actual person. Right. You know? right. So I'm like, here, it's just uh, Ringo's bathroom. You know? <laughs> anyway, I went over there and uh, it was great. It was a great time. It was just me and Ringo and the engineer. And I was overdubbing a part. And most of it had been recorded already. And what's the track that you're on, Bob? It's a uh, back, uh, Boogaloo, which is a remake of the hit that he had early. Of course. Seven. Yeah. yeah. He he uh, t- he found his original demo of that tune, mm. which was him like playing acoustic guitar and singing it. Wow. And so we cut to that demo. He like they transferred that to digital and then they overdubbed a band over it. So it was Springo playing drums, and uh, Joe Walsh was on it. And uh, I was a bunch of heavy hitters, right? Man. And then and me, right. <laughs> right? You're a heavy hitter too, it's sir. It's the final overdub. Yeah. Uh, Jeff Lynn was playing on it. Oh, sweet. Uh, it was just it was killer track. Anyway, that was uh, that's what it was, and they, and it's on the the CD there. And I got a you can't see it, but I got a picture of you and Ringo up right now on the screen, giving the piece oh, yeah. love sign. And he has a giant uh, sculpture of of that of the this right with yeah. pieces of in, in, in his driveway. You know, it's like a big circular park, seven cars kind of driveway, and there's this big. And so, at some point, I was playing in Vegas, and I was sitting at some restaurant, bar, or whatever, and, and I got talking. But you just seen me play with John, and they're like, "Oh my God, you're the keyboard player!" And we were talking, and it turns out that. Uh, that statue was made in Santa Cruz by a friend of hers. Oh, wow. like, I, know the, I know the person who made the peace and love uh, statue. Oh, cool. Yeah, it's just crazy. Small so world. Yeah. Small world. Um, sort of any direction from Ringo that he gave? Yeah, lots of direction. He knew exactly what he wanted. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. And he was very nice. I mean, if you're a Beatle... Like there's fame, and then there's the, like that level. Yeah. Like all the big rock stars of the '70s, right? Every single one of them has the same origin story, which is, I saw the Beatles on Ed Sullivan, right. and I knew what I was going to do the rest of my life. Exactly. Right. So, it's a step up 
uh, an influence yeah. from anyone else, right. really. Yeah, no doubt. <clears throat> and so he knows he has to put you at ease. Yeah. I mean, this is my. He's just a great guy, really nice, and he, you know, he's like showed me his drums. Set. You know, it just he was he was just and then, you know, it was this part of the song where I was supposed to do some cool fills, you know, and and uh, I did one and he's sitting there and he's like he's smiling and and then I immediately just messed up the next part because I'm like, he liked it. <laughs> I love it. That's it. Stop and you know do, yeah. doing it. Yeah, but you made Ringo happy and that's that's yeah, the bottom so he line. Was happy. Ringo was happy. Right. Anyway, you know, it's a big deal right. to meet a Beatle. Of, you know. of course. I got home from the session in the afternoon. I'm like, oh, I got a bunch of work to do. And I was like, you know, I'm not doing anything else for the rest of the day. It, it'll all just be a disappointment, whatever it is. So I invited all my friends over for a barbecue and grilled up a bunch of meat. <laughs> and that was my day. There you go. Better, better choice, I think, right there, right? Yeah. Your time at Berkeley, what did you get out of it? What what did you learn the most out of that? Uh, well, yeah, I, you know, I had private lessons as a kid, like we talked about. Yeah. And uh, also when I was in high school, I had a really great uh, band and choir teachers who kind of, you know, they knew I was going to play for real. And they took me under their wing and they taught me music theory and extra stuff that they weren't teaching in the normal class. And I also was just you know, kind of figuring a lot of stuff out. Like I taught myself how to write horn arrangements, listening to Chicago records. Like I, like two bars would go by and then lift the needle up and I'd transcribe the horn arrangement, you know, stuff like that. And I, uh, so by the time I got to Berkeley, I knew a lot of stuff. I was able to test out of a bunch of things and kind of move up a grade. And, and uh, you know, it was great. I learned a lot there. I, I have a couple. I was playing for a living basically by then. Wow. I was playing six nights a week, hmm. uh, you know, to pay for my apartment, and uh, so I was working. Yeah. So I saw a lot of people, a lot of the kids at the school that I was going to school with had never actually worked. Oh, okay. They were good musicians. They got into Berkeley College of Music. Right. All good, but they had real illusions about what it was going to be like. Sure. None. I mean, right. the, you were. I tell everyone that I had all these classes at Berkeley, but the best one I had was sight singing. It was this thing where uh, you go in every week and and they give you this sheet of music and you would sight sing it without any instruments. You'd sing the melody line on the page, and it got harder and harder and harder, and it got real avant-garde by the end. But it was the greatest ear training. So now I can. So, you know, I get hired to write uh, string arrangements, horn arrangements, orchestra. I do uh, you know, musical theater orchestrations for people. And I can just sit in a hotel room while I'm on the road and do it without ever having a piano handy. <clears throat> and I can just use my ears. Yeah. And that's, you know, a lot of that's because of that class. Yeah. And so I had an arranging class. And uh, this is the story I tell everybody because it's instructive. Um it had a component of technical stuff where you learn drop two voicings and don't use parallel fifths and octaves and that kind of stuff. And, and it had a creative aspect. So there's a midterm on the technical stuff. And, 
you know, I missed a lot of classes. I didn't. Uh, it was early class, and I was never much of a Morrison. And uh, I got probably a C or something. That did very mediocre on the written test. And then our final project was to write a big band arrangement. So I just wrote a big band arrangement using none of the things I was taught. I just wrote because I had already listened in that way for a long time, right? I just used what I thought it should sound like. And I turned it in, and we show up for the last day of class, and the teacher comes in, and he's like, he holds up a copy of my arrangement, and he he hands him out, and he goes, this is what your arrangement should be like. This is the best one ever. You know, it's because they were all trying to use the technical stuff they had learned. They weren't being creative. You know, I was being creative. There was probably some things wrong with it, but... It was interesting in a way that the others weren't, I guess. And so he handed it out to everybody. He's like, right like this guy who totally didn't pay attention in class right. and, and forgot all the stuff that you taught me. It was kind of like that. That's fantastic. I love it. That was, that was my time at Berlin. Also, the interesting thing, it was 87, 88 and around there, and they were just starting – uh, the songwriting classes, you know, like the pop music program, which is a big thing there now. But at the time, it was a jazz school, and they were just starting all that. And uh, I was always kind of on the fence about, you know, I took, I was in one of the songwriting classes, and it was interesting to me. Like, there was nothing wrong with it, and they would pick apart a great song and analyze why it was a great song. But on the other hand, I'm like, these great songs are great because uh, whoever wrote them lived, you know, you know what I'm saying? Like, uh, so I was a little bit like, okay, this is nice to know, but, uh, you know, you're not going to be a great songwriter because you took this class, which is true of anything, I guess. Sure. You know? Yeah. So what does, what do you think makes a great song and what advice would you give to, aspiring songwriters ah uh, you know a great song there's i have like i have this theory there's three kinds of there's like bad songs there's really good songs and then there's hit songs hit songs are really good songs actually they can be good or they can be embarrassingly bad but they have a thing yeah. that you i don't know what that thing is like anyone who says they do is lying they just have a th- i have friends who've written hit songs and it was just another song when he wrote, but it had a thing and it ended up just everyone. But I can tell you a great song, you know, it should appeal. Like I was talking about before, like you write a personal song and it's very, you know, you're really bearing your soul, but it has to be, everyone else has to be feeling that like, it can't be just about you. You don't consciously do this. But when it works, and you've pretty much put your diary on, on the page and sung it, everyone's like, oh, my God, this is me. This is exactly how I feel. You know, that's the first element, you know, is this universality that everyone has to be able to relate. And, uh, you know, and you can't, I don't think you can make too much of a contrivance of that and just go in and say, well, everyone's going to have to relate to this. It just has to you just have got to do it right. It's hard to explain. Like, it's not, you know it when you've done it, right. you know, and you, and you know it when you've not done it. Like, I've seen people get up and they, 
and they're singing very personal stuff. And it's kind of like, I don't care about, you know, I don't care about your pain. But when they do it right, I really care about your pain because it's also my pain. So there's that. And uh, other than that, you know, there I don't think there's rules. You know, there's all kinds of great songs that, you know, are, are eight minutes long or, you know, take you know, a tiny dancer. It takes almost three minutes to get to the chorus, right? No rule is adhered to whatsoever, but that song is all hook. So you don't care. It's all chorus. By the time they get to the chorus, you're like, oh, my God, it's even better than I thought it was going to be. But, you know, there's an example of, uh, you know, a classic song that you know, there's lots of others, of course, but that just came to mind. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so, uh, you know, it, it just works or it doesn't work. It's awfully vague. No, I think it's, it's true. My whole thing in life is I just want to write one song that is going to last for, for people. Mm. That's, that's my goal. I don't know if I'll ever reach that goal. But that's what I, that's all the legacy I want to, you know, I'm a good player. I'm an okay singer. You know, uh, I just want to write one song that's going to just live forever after I die. No one will even know who wrote it, but it'll just be around and people will be singing it. Love it. That's a great goal, right? Maybe it's good people because folks can get that now. Are, are you also... Writing new material. Nice way. That was nice. Thank you. Yeah, no, I'm pretty much done with the next album that that'll be on. Are you? Like I'm one song short, and uh, the rest of it's done. There's some tunes we're doing overdubs on, but the, you know, the song is written, and we're just just kind of wrapping up the last bit of you know the last twenty percent of work that needs to happen. Cool. And and when can we expect that to come out possible? Uh, you know, Either late this year or very early next year. Sure. Okay. You know, uh, but you know, I'd say probably like, you know, if I, if everything really works out, I, I think the release schedule with my distributor won't allow me to really technically release it uh, this year. But I'll, I might do a pre-release for Christmas. Okay. People can get it. And then in January, it'll all ramp up. Sounds great. And we're, so, uh, you know, I don't run out of money before that. Right, right. It should yeah. all work out. If I do, you'll know why it came out in the spring. That's right. Exactly. <laughs> or we'll, go back on the road and make some money. That's right. Or get yeah. a Kickstarter campaign going, right? Yeah. So, I did one of those for my last record and uh, I, I, I did raise a bunch of money and it great. was really cool, but I don't, I don't know. I was, it was awkward for me. Yeah. I didn't like it. It's challenging. And also, I have a really cool gig with a famous person, and so a lot of people think I make more money than I actually do because of that. You know, there's this perception that I, you know, that I'm really rolling in it, which, you know, I'm. I have attained a rare dream, which is to be a middle class musician. <laughs> you know, not a lot of people get. They, usually, you see people who are making no money, or you know, scraping by, or they're Rich and famous. I'm not either of those things. I'm a middle class. Middle musician. class. Gotta love you it. Know, Gotta love it. It's yeah. So that's where I'm at. 
One of the questions, Bob, that we've got on on the feed with folks who are watching, um, talking about being on tour with John Fogarty, talking about what are some of your favorite songs to play with John? Oh, favorite John Fogarty songs. Uh, well, I think um, oh, that one I was playing before, I want to see the light. You know? That's my favorite. I think that's my favorite. It's one of my favorites, too. I love it. Unbelievable song. And then, you know, we usually hit right off with Green River, Mm. which is another one of my favorites. And also, uh, um, he did this the last record he made. It was like covers of his classics, his duets with other people. And he wrote two new songs for him. One of them was called uh, Mystic Highway. And that song's amazing. That's one of my favorites, too. And it's like a new, well, it's, I guess that was five years ago, but in the grand scheme of things, a new John Fogarty song. Wow. Really great tune. Yeah. They're all, the thing about those songs is uh, they all play, like we don't have to play old fashioned, you know, we don't have to make believe it's the 60s and play. We just play like a rock band plays now. And they sound great. Like they're just, uh, they just come on. I never feel like I'm playing an oldie. I never feel like I'm playing old songs. Those songs have no age to me. They're timeless, right? It's the highest achievement to really, to do something, to me, to do something that is, that uh, can become detached from its era, you know? Yes. Like people who are there, there's, a nostalgia 60s element right. for them, but I wasn't there. Right. And I didn't have to be there, right? It all still works. Yeah. yeah. Anyway. Yeah, because there's so, new generations of fans every day. Yeah, there's young people that yeah. love those songs. A lot of them don't even know who he is, but they know all the songs, right. you know? Right. We'll play a festival, and it'll be all these people. And we come out, and like, all these people have no idea who this is, but they're about to find, they're about to find out. And we start playing, and they're all like, Singing along, like I know this song, and then they figure it out. <laughs> yeah, these <laughs> yeah. are these are iconic songs that make so many people happy. It's it's really incredible. What are what have been some of the highlights for you, Bob? Some of the the places that you've played that you so, sort of just kick back and go, oh, here I am at this at this gig. Oh yeah, well we played uh, we just played Red Rocks in uh, yeah. Denver. That's just unbelievable you can't help but be you feel like you're a tourist on your own gig you know it's just so spectacular and we just played played uh, the hollywood bowl that was a nice gig and uh radio city we've done a couple of times we played like the first month i was in the band we went to russia we played moscow we played this festival out in the middle of the street for like 300,000 people. Man. It's crazy. I was still learning the tunes, you know. Yeah. <laughs> you pulled and, it off, though. Yeah, that was, that, was, that was a good gig. I don't really remember much of it, except I just looked at, out at the crowd, and it just went on and on. Like, you couldn't see the back of it. Wow. It's incredible. And, yeah, we played some really, really iconic spots in that band. Are there other places either coming up or dream places that you'd love to play? Uh, I still haven't played Carnegie Hall. I really like to play Carnegie Hall. 
Uh, probably not with John. It's too small for him. If you okay. can believe that, <laughs> it's a little. It's a little small. Right. right. But uh, I'd love to play there. Yeah. And uh, you know, where else would I like to play? I've played a lot of the places. Mm. Royal Albert Hall. You've played. Right. No, I haven't played there. I'd like to do that. Yeah. Yeah. That's his... We just played. Uh, we just played the O2 in, in yeah. London. Yeah, amazing. Great venue. Sounds bad in there though. Does it? Yeah. What? It's you know a lot of these arena places, they don't sound very good. You know, it's all bouncing around, and mm. you know it's more of a. Uh, it's exciting because it's a big, huge crowd. You're right. playing arena, and that's every teenager's dream. But sure. like on a musical level, yeah, I'd rather play a slightly smaller place where. Where everything sounds better yeah. on stage. So the sound just travels too much? Yeah. My first thing is you go and have sound check in the, in the empty arena. Right. And that's just a battle you're never going to win. Like that, a place like that with no people in it to absorb some of the sound. Sure. It's just awful. Yeah. And then once people are in there, it's it's quite a bit better. But it's not like a the, like theaters are my favorite. Because they're big enough that you get that big crowd feel, but they're usually more acoustically sound, and it really sounds great. And you can the, the music, the details come out. You know, you play an arena, the details get lost. You just gotta bash it out. You know, yeah. it's got it's great. Like I, I probably sound like I'm whining about. It, no, you know? not at all. It's I think it's it's. But since you asked, right? You know? <laughs> I did ask. Yes. <laughs> what it's like and, in the big rooms. And that's what I love about the show is just sort of having that behind the scenes info that, you know, when we're fans, we just show up. We don't know any of that stuff. But No, we, no one knows. Yeah, but no you guys can, playing, you know the the intricacies of all of that. Yeah. It's a job, you know, you you have to learn how to do it right. Playing uh, pl- and playing in very big places is a different way of playing, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Uh you you just there's you can't quite play the way you would play in a club you know it doesn't really work you have to make bigger musical gestures so you have to simplify things not in a bad way but just you have to play the room to the room you know you're also spread out you know on these big stages so you're only getting whatever's in your monitor so if you want to hear you know kenny aronoff is on stage and he's a really hard-hitting drummer but He's like way over here, and if I don't have him in, this, in my monitor, I don't really hear him. Wow. He's far away. No, oh, that's amazing. It seems unbelievable, but yeah. you know, he's intimate. But whatever's going on, if it's not, so I got him like cranked in my monitor. The bass player's way over on the other side of the stage. Right. I hear nothing unless I put him in my monitor, right. and I gotta have him there. Sure. So, uh, you know, it's just a whole different way of of making music. You know, you, you come up playing on club stages. You're all close to each other. Yes. And, you're really hearing the details of what everyone's doing, and and, you, and there's a flow that you become a unit. So it, it's harder to do that on a big stage. Yeah, and speaking of club gigs, uh, and maybe there's more, but a, a couple more questions I wanted to ask, and then maybe we can wrap up with another song, is you've got your own gigs coming up as well as being on tour with John Fogarty, some East Coast gigs. Tell us about that, please. Oh, yeah, so I'm playing Sellersville Theater, and uh, live at the Falcon, which is this really awesome room, and uh, and Debonair Music Hall, which is in uh, Teaneck, New Jersey, just outside New York City. They're all all good rooms. Uh, most of them are with uh, with Bobby Masano, who's this great guitar player. We're 
were double billing together. I just played on his new record. He played with Steve Winwood. Uh-huh. He was the guitar player on the 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 MTV theme. Da 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 da. Yeah, I know. That's great. When he told me that, I'm like, oh my god, right. you're my you're my adolescence. Right, exactly. <laughs> anyway, he's an unbelievable. So you know, you half his songs, half my songs. Awesome. My will be backing this both up. We'll be backing each other up. Yeah. So they'll be. Uh, those are going to be fun shows. And then in December, I have a couple of, uh, I made a Christmas record last year because I, I, you know, I had my version of the You're a Mean One, Mr. Grinch, was in that Grinch movie that uh, yes, I yeah, was in the trailers. Wonderful. And it got like millions, millions of hits on, you know, people. Awesome. It was the most popular thing I've ever done. That I recorded it. That's a story. I sure. have time. Yeah, please go for it. I started in 04, and nothing much really happened. I just did it because I liked it. And uh, it was just out there on, on the iTunes or whatever. Yeah. I get this call in 2017 uh, from Universal, from like an assistant, somebody's assistant at Universal. Saying, oh, we want to use your Grinch song in a, in, in a project. I'm like, oh, wow, great. What What is it? You know, oh, I can't tell you what it is. Uh, I said, well, you know, talk to my manager. <laughs> right. So we sent it over to my manager. And then they were like, we need stems. Stems are like uh, the individual tracks, like a drum track, mm-hmm. piano track. Mm-hmm. I said, well, geez, like, I don't even know what they're doing with it or what they're paying me or anything. And they won't say. So well, no, we can't say yet, because they didn't want anyone knowing that this movie was coming out yet, right? So they want me talking. Right. So I said, I have nothing to lose. I didn't even write this song. It's been sitting around for 16 years. So we sent it, and they, you know, so it was eventually revealed to me that it was for that movie. Wow. And uh, they were still very cagey about. Are they going to use it? Are they not going to use it? And maybe like two days before we worked out the part, you know, and like like two days before the thing went public, uh, my manager got the check and still no one really told me anything. And then I wake up one morning, and, and this was in March of 2018. They had started, they had the trailers from March all the way until Christmas. Wow. And yeah. And, uh, you know, my social media was lit up with all these people like, I heard you on the new Grinch trailer. Oh, and I, and I said, well, it's a good thing you saw. I had no idea that was right. out. Right. And that's how that happened. That's fantastic. That's great. Yeah. That got a lot of play. You so never knew. That, you never knew you made a Christmas classic. Congratulations. Right. So that year. So that was last year. I'm like, I, I better make a whole album, you know, and I had some stuff. Nice. Uh, the original Christmas things, and, and I picked out a few. And I tried to, you know, I, I I wanted it to not be cheesy and not be a cash-in and not be a bad Christmas record, which there are so. Sure. So I think I accomplished that. It's a little different than your average, you know. It's like, it's uh, Christmas music for people who hate that kind of stuff. Like, if you hate Christmas music, this will be your favorite holiday album i love it i guarantee it anyway we're doing a couple of shows 
on the West Coast for that in December. Uh, that will be one here in LA and one up in Northern California. That's fantastic. And both in like little theaters. And uh, the show will be everything from that record plus my normal stuff. Yeah. That's, and what's My band, background singers. Be really nice. What's the name of the Christmas album and where can folks oh, get it? The Christmas Collection, available wherever, you know, yeah. fine yeah. music is. <laughs> yeah. You can download it. You can. You can stream it. You can buy the CD. There's sure. many, many ways to access it. Amazing. And, you know, I was curious, your, your backup singers who you had on with Fogarty, someone else was asking about this uh, with the Molinettes, were they on the Christmas album as well? Yeah, yeah. Malonettes. Malonettes. Um, yeah, right. And they made that name up. I love it. They just, they've been singing with me for 10 years. I mean, uh, Trissette and Levon are the are the two of the there's four ones one's my wife and she doesn't really travel that much with the band so she's like the the fourth one is is the sub for Karen but sometimes we just have all four in a gig you know right. it's become a thing anyway they yeah uh, for that Fogarty show it was like a a whole uh, Woodstock themed yeah, thing they were great. Right? And so they added the, the Joe Cocker version of Little Help for My Friends. Amazing. A couple of Sly Stone songs. You heard it, right? Yeah, it's great. And they just needed back female background singers. We were at John's house rehearsing, and it was just us guys singing it. It was okay, but it was kind of laying there. And finally, he's like, well, we're going to do Let's do it right. And then, uh, anyway, I was like, oh, I'm going to get my friends on this gig. <laughs> so I said, I'm going to be Right. And then, they have to drop everything, show up for a week of rehearsal starting tomorrow, and then we're going right to Vegas for two weeks. Wow. So, uh, yeah, LaVon's like, I have, like, these two gigs. I said, you don't now. Nope, not anymore, <laughs> you know? right? Not anymore. Take, you take all the dates or none of them. No, you can't sub out, right. you know, right at the beginning. Anyway, they, they are. They're very – I and was are, really happy I could do that. Yeah, they were amazing. Or will and they're they great. You know, I mean, they obviously had to be great. And, sure. You know, but they've been singing with me for years. We played China and Italy last year at these really big festivals. Amazing. They were with me on those and, uh, you know, my, my own gig. And, uh, and yeah, they're, on, they're in a video for good people. Yes, which yes. In the subway. Right. Which is also illegal. Oh, really? You know, I, yeah, we're well, supposed to get a permit. Yeah, okay. You know? Got it. So all day we're, we're like, of avoiding the subway hops. Like, we'd see one, and they're kind of INS, you know. Right. We've got, like, a, a light unit. guys you know, like And then we just moved to another. Anyway, we, we stuck it. And now I'm going to get fined. Right. <laughs> no, we, we won't tell anybody, Bob. We won't tell anybody. Don't tell anybody. Right. Yeah, and w will the Malonettes also be back on tour uh, on the next leg of the Fogarty tour? Yeah, I probably. Yeah, they're they're on a bunch of gigs this year. Okay, I know they'll be in Vegas with us. Uh, I don't know what is happening next year, so I don't really know. Okay, I, I just work there. You right. Know. Yep. Exactly. But you're just you're just I'm a piano player. Know. I'm just the yeah. Don't shoot me. Right. I'm just the piano player. Exactly. But they'll be on tour with Bob Malone band. Right. Yes. <laughs> I'll make sure that happens. Exactly. 
Man, this has been a lot of fun. Bob, final question, and then we'll have you play us out, if you'd be so kind, is you've clearly had uh, an amazing career so far, and it's far from over. You've had, uh, obviously, some highs and some lows and have persevered for some tough times. What advice would you give other musicians who might be struggling right now, need a little bit of hope to keep going until maybe they get the phone call you got? Well, um, it helped that I had nothing to fall back on. And I just, your primary reason for doing it has to be because you love doing it. Because you may or may not get the big call. You may or may not ever make any real money. You know, it's just, you just kind of take the vow and it's what you're going to do, it's what you're going to be. Sometimes it really doesn't work out. And I have to be honest that things have changed and it's harder. It was plenty hard for me coming up, but it's even harder now because when I was coming up, there was lots of little shitty gigs that I could play for low money every night and scrape by enough to live off of that. But, um, you know, there's way less of that now. So young musicians now don't have those options like they used to. So I'm coming from a place where, and, and when I was coming up, things were way worse than they were for all those guys that were 10, 15 years older than me. They're like, Oh, you have no idea what it used to be like. There was so many, you know, Unions control the clubs. You got paid a certain amount of money. I mean, I I missed that whole. You know, it was it was the music business. The way it's bad now, it was all just starting to happen when I entered it. You know, like early '90s, late '80s, early '90s. No one saw it coming yet, because but it was beginning. You know, to uh, turn into what it's now turned into, which is a whole different business than it was before that. Anyway, uh, yeah, do it for love. Be prepared. Be easy to work with. Like, if there's a guy or a woman, if there's a person who's a really great player and is really easy to work with, and there's a person who's an even better player but is difficult and unpleasant to be around, the person that's easy to work with is going to get the gig. Nobody wants to be on the road or in the studio with somebody who's a dick. It's just not, you know. And you don't see much of that. People, you see a lot of that behavior more so in kind of second or third tier markets where you can be a really good player and hard to work with, but there's you're not surrounded by a lot of other good players. But here in L.A., they're just knee-deep in great players. They're everywhere. So there's no way you work if you're hard to work with you know that's also uh something to keep in mind right but yeah just do love music you know that sounds kind of i don't know it, it it's uh you have to treat it like a job because it is a job but you have to do it i i've always been a fan like i try to stay a fan and love music like i did when i was a teenager and I was a fan. I wanted to play great, but I also just loved it. You know, that's the most important part. Yeah. It'll, it'll, that sort of thinking will create opportunities for you, you know, and you meet people 
And I've also found that every opportunity, you know, it's a yard to know somebody and all that. You do, but everyone has ever thrown a cool gig my way was actually my friend, not somebody that I tried to schmooze. You know, it was somebody I actually had a relationship with. Same as Levon and Trissette, right? They were not only great singers, but, you know, we'd been through the, we'd been through the whole thing together on the road, touring in a van and, you know, and they're, they're friends and they're my pals. I'm going to call them before I call somebody I have a, you know, that I just kind of know a little bit, even though they're great too. So make friends with people. And I'm an introvert and I don't make friends easily, so... Even I have had to make. When I make a friend, I really make a friend. Sure, right. That's 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 all part of it. I think it's great advice. I mean, obviously, you got to be good, good player. But the the networking and relating, you got to get along well with the other kids. That's a huge yes. component of it, right? And I found the kind of networking where, like, oh, there's this cool hang, go over to it and network with people. I've never gotten any kind of work out of that situation. Okay. I've gotten work out of working. Right. You know. Right. Like early on, my my policy was no matter how bad the gig is, no matter how little it pays, show up. You have to just show up and show your face. You have to be around a lot. Right. You know, now I turn stuff down, but right. that, you know, I made, I, a lot of high paying stuff came my way from doing some gig that paid zero dollars, right. Right. you know, and, but I, I met, made new audience uh, fans and I made, I made new connections with, players that I was playing with. Sure. So that's my advice for whatever it's worth. Absolutely.
you can spend some Fantastic, Bob. That is incredible. Unbelievable, sir. That is great. I love it. Bob, thank you so much. Really appreciate you being on the show today. It's Bob Malone, everybody. Check him out on tour with John Fogarty. Thanks for being on Musicians on the Record today, Bob. Glad we could work it out. Thanks, everybody, for watching. Whether you're watching live or in the replay, get your questions or comments in and follow us on Musicians on the Record. Peace, everybody. Thank you.